All right, I want to imagine this morning, I want, I want you to imagine you have this, this friend. It's somebody who didn't grow up in a, in a Christian environment. They didn't go to church. They, uh, they don't believe the same things that maybe you believe about Christmas. And, and that friend comes up to you and says, like, hey, there's, there's a lot that kind of I hear about with Christmas, with the songs, with the decorations. Would you be willing to explain to me, can you, can you describe Christmas for me? And let's assume that in this scenario, you, I mean, you love Christmas, like you love putting out the decorations, you love singing the songs, you love all of that stuff. And so like, this is your God-centered moment. This is like, you're, you're going to lean into this. So you lean into your friend and you say, oh my gosh, okay, so there are these angels that are singing, there are these shepherds that are praising, there uh, is this star that is shining, and you're describing all the events of what happened at Bethlehem on that day, and you can tell you are not getting through to this person. It's not making any sense. And you realize that you're losing this person, and so you are like, back up, let me back up a few minutes, and you are kind of going to lean back on some of the theological catchphrases that you've heard us preachers say over the years. So you see, there was this God who became a human being. There was this king that became a servant. There was this virgin that gave birth to a child. There was, and you're using all these different phrases, and now you've totally lost this friend of yours. Because this person wanted to know about Christmas. And you love Christmas, and yet you can't seem to describe it. Here's my point. We're better at describing what happened at Christmas than we are at describing what difference that Christmas actually makes. And yet what our world is waiting to hear right now is not necessarily about all those different things that we may cherish on the inside of that story. But they're looking for a clear and simple message of, hey, what difference does Christmas make? And to complicate this, there's not one answer to that question. I don't mean that there's not right and wrong when it comes to that question. I mean, there's just, in the vastness of the mystery and the goodness of God, there's, there's just more, there's more to describe there than you can possibly do in a conversation. In fact, I want to put up a map on the screen. If you were to go to the, the early the kind of the first century and go to those early Christians and you were to go down in the bottom right-hand corner there to Jerusalem and you were to say to those early Christians, hey, what difference does Jesus coming make? They would say, oh my gosh, there was this temple and in this temple, this is where we thought God came to dwell with us, but that temple was destroyed and now we know that in Jesus, God dwells with us. And then if you were to work your way up into the coast into that area called Galatia, they would say, you know what, we were feeling pretty good about our own self-justification, about how we can feel good and okay about ourselves, but we've discovered that there's a true righteousness that can actually only be found in Jesus. And if you were to work your way down to Colossae, they would say, you know, it seems to be in the Roman Empire that there was this lordship of Caesar, and we thought he was the one that's in charge, and it turns out he's not in charge, that there's a new king called Jesus. Or if you were to move your way over to Ephesus and they were to sell you, you know, our community is pulled apart by division and by infighting and all of these things. And we have discovered that the only way that we can find unity is to find it in Jesus and that he's the one that's brought us together. And in Corinth, they would tell you, hey, there's, we thought freedom was the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you wanted it, but we're actually discovering that the only freedom that can be found is in Jesus. And so you could work your way through all of the ancient world, and all of these were faith-filled Christians, and if you said to them, what difference does God's coming in Jesus make, they would give you a different answer. 
But there is an ancient answer that I believe that we need to blow the dust off and recover today. And that is, is if you were to walk into the streets thousands of years ago of a bustling and bursting Roman colony by the name of Philippi, and you were to enter into that and to find a Christian on the street and say, hey, what difference does Christmas make? What does God's coming in Jesus make to you? I think that person would say, you know, we lost our joy, but we have found our joy in Jesus. And I find that to be a timely message for where we are in our moment as a society. In the conversations that I'm having with people, people would say, you know, like, hey, um, we're looking for things to come back post-COVID. We need, our, we need our economy to recover. Well, guess what? Our economy recovered faster than our joy did. That we need our schools to recover, yes, but our schools have recovered faster than our joy has. That our businesses and our retail and in all these different dimensions of our community and sports and all these things have come back faster than the recovery of our joy. That somewhere in particular over the last couple of years we've lost our joy and despair and hopelessness are at all-time highs. Anxiety, worries, doubts, fears, and and our joy just seems to have gone away. Maybe you can relate to this prayer of King David when he prayed this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Will you say this prayer with me? Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What I'm hoping that we will do over the course of the March of Advent, which is the ancient church's calendar of four weeks of anticipation building up to the celebration that is Christmas, I'm hoping that we will recover our joy. And that the way that we're going to do that is that we're going to peek in on this ancient piece of correspondence, a letter that Paul wrote to that church to help them to do this very same task. And that there's going to be four different dimensions of their experience of their joy being recovered. Gratitude, humility, resilience, and peace. I was with a group of pastors recently, and there's a guy in that group who is in his 60s, and he's getting close to retirement. And so I kind of saddled up next to him for a little while, and I said, hey, as you're looking at kind of the finish line, I'm hoping I got another 20 years left in the tank. Is there anything that you feel like that you should have done differently, that you know now that you wish you would have known then? Is there anything you would have done differently in ministry? And he said, yes, I would have repeated more. And I said, tell me more what you mean about that. Do you mean like repeating your favorite stories? And he's like, no, 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 my congregation is sick of all of my favorite stories. And I said, do you mean like repeating vision because vision is really hard to keep in front of people and you feel like you're saying, and he's like, that's true, but that's not what I mean. I said, well, what would you have repeated more? He's like, Rich, I would have repeated more scripture. He's like, most of our services have a verse here and a verse there and a verse here and a verse there. And we read it once and it's like, okay, well, we don't need to read that again for three years. 
He's like, I would have repeated more scripture because as he reminded me, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God stands forever. You're going to forget my stories. You're going to forget all of this stuff. The one thing that endures from generation to generation and throughout the centuries is God's word. So we're going to repeat some scripture in here today, and we're going to do that during Advent season. There is one scripture that we're going to have for all four weeks of Advent. It's the same scripture, but don't worry, it's a long one so you won't get bored. And I've spent some time internalizing this. There are different ways of reading and studying and hearing scripture. You know, normally I have you open your Bibles. I don't want you to do that. Each week I want you to hear the same scripture and I want you to hear it in the same way that it would have been read aloud to those early Christians in Philippi so that they would have heard it and received it. Part of the reason I don't want you to follow along in your Bibles is because I'm going to be reading from a different translation than what you're used to and I've actually retranslated part of these words that I think are a little confusing and I don't want you to get stuck on verbiage. I want you to stay in the flow of the message. Can you do that with me? I thank my God every time I remember you. Constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart, for all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer. That your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and with full insight to help you to determine what is best. So that on the day of Jesus you may be pure and blameless, having produced a harvest of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so if there's any encouragement in Christ, and if there's any consolation from love, if there's any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion, any sympathy, then make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, be of the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind of Christ be in you. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but he, he emptied himself. He took on the form of a slave, and being found in human likeness and being bound in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to a point of death, even death on a cross. And so therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so my beloved, just as you have obeyed me not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of 
a warped and crooked generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. And yet whatever gains I have, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as a waste in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes from faith in God. The righteousness of God that is found in faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing in his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already attained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this, this one thing I will do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. And so rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. So don't worry about anything. But in everything, with prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, Let your requests be known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will stand guard at your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's anything that is excellent, if there's anything that is worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have heard and seen and learned and received in me. And the God of peace will be with you. Did you guys get all that? You got all that down. Okay. So, Paul writes this letter and he's writing to help them to discover their joy in the Lord, their joy in Christ. And there's four different moves, four different chapters. And in the first chapter, Paul hones in and talks about the gift of gratitude. That there is no joy to be found that if it's first not found in the foundation, in the bedrock of being grateful. And according to the Apostle Paul, there's at least three things, but these are the top three things that he would say in order helping you to cultivate your gratitude in the first chapter. Is your confidence in the right place? Is your consistency in the right practices? And is your community with the right purpose? And so first, let's talk about your confidence in the right place. Paul says this, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. I have a friend and he's in his 60s and for the first six decades of his life, if you would have had him to describe his life, it would have been full of blessings and success. Um, I mean, just accomplished, uh, recognizable, meaningful work, family flourishing, not just kids, but grandkids, just life so sweet and good and faith-filled 
I mean, if I was to describe this kind of person, you would say, this person has it all and has it all together. And in his sixth decade, everything starts to fall apart at not any of his fault. It's like Job, all of a sudden, things start to unravel. And if I were to tell you the details of his life, you would stop me at one point and you say, Rich, you're not writing a script for a movie. Tell me what really happened to him. And I would tell you, this is what really happened to him. And so I got to ask him recently, what has he learned about 60 plus years of blessing and just to see it all crumble? And he said this, Being okay is not a solid foundation for life. You see, it's really easy for you and I to think, oh, we've got our confidence, we've put our trust, we've put our faith in Jesus, we've put our faith in God, and we say that and we sing it and we proclaim it. We even think that we think it. And then all of a sudden, if your circumstances were to change, you would realize how much of your life is oriented around being okay and your circumstances as opposed to your life being about a trust in God. One who began a good work among you, who will see it to the finish. I'm here to tell you that I see all too many of us putting our confidence in what we have, our wealth, our security, our wisdom, our knowledge. And I'm here to tell you it can be taken away in an instant. It might not even be your fault. And that being okay is not the foundation for life that God wants you to have that you can put your trust, your confidence, as was sung a little while ago, in the goodness of God. And that he will be faithful to you. So the first step of gratitude is to understand that your gratitude can't just be like in the list that maybe you and I did of in what we have, but in the one who makes all things possible. And the second step in gratitude is consistency in the right practice. Consistency in the right kinds of practices. And this is what the scripture says. I thank my God every time I remember you constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you. One of the things that you'll notice in Paul's letter to the Philippians is that over and over again, he keeps talking about what he is doing over and over again. He doesn't just say, I thanked God this one day and that was good enough for me. He doesn't just say, I prayed for you once, and I figure that checks the box. He talks about the rhythms of grace that he is engaged in, and how those rhythms of his grace lead to the overflow of his life. Let me see if I can illustrate this. I want to show you a picture of a famous composer. His name is Arvo Pear, and he is considered the greatest living composer of our generation. And Arvo grew up in Estonia, which prior to 1991 was a part of the Soviet Union. His family had a piano, but all of the middle keys of the piano were broken. And he could only play in the upper register 
and in the bottom register. Enormously talented, enormously creative. He was invested and became a famous composer during the Soviet Union. In 1968, he started going through a 10-year-plus crisis and journey, both personally, relationally, and in every way which eventually led him to the point of converting to Orthodox Christianity. And in the midst of that conversion, he put out his first truly sacred piece called the Credo. This didn't sit well with the Soviet Union because they saw God in this form as a threat to the empire. And so he began to be ostracized. Now, in rooted in faith with the rhythms of prayer and gathering together for worship and those kinds of things, his music started to take on an entirely different form. Fast forward all the way to just a handful of years ago, Pope Francis gave Arvo one of the highest recognition and honors that the church bestows upon somebody. And when they interviewed in this kind of famous time for him, what makes his music different? This is what he said. He said, I don't know, but I have a love for every note. This is what the scholars say about his music. No pause, no note is wasted. There is nothing that is unintentional. And you can feel his heart that is in the midst of his music. Whether you realize it or not, you are an artist, you are a composer of your own life. And the question is, do you treat your own life with the sacredness of the rhythm of your life having a love for every note, with every word and with who you are and with, are you, are you a part of the rhythm of not just a prayer here or there or kind of the sporadic nature or the way that most of us treat the spirituality that is our lives, but is it rooted in the consistency and the constancy of the right rhythms and practices where your love may overflow more and more like the Apostle Paul. In other words, when we're talking about gratitude, your confidence, your trust has to be in the right place. But in addition to that, you have to have not just sporadic, but consistent practice in the rhythms of God's grace. And then the third point is do you have community with the right kind of purpose. Community with the right kind of purpose. You may have not heard the word community when we were sharing the scripture earlier, and that's because it often gets translated in different ways. The famous kind of New Testament word is the word for koinonia. And this is one of the most common Greek words that we know today, but it's also misunderstood. The way it translates is because of your sharing your koinonia in the gospel, for all of you share or koinonia in God's grace with me. We tend to think of community as being for community's sake. Community was always community with a purpose, with a gospel end and intentionality. There's a middle-aged woman in my last congregation whose family had done well enough that she had a pretty sizable home in Newport Beach. She had a friend in the church whose name was Laura, and Laura was a bulldog for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Laura would go into places with the gospel that most of us wouldn't dream of, whether it was human trafficking situations or the place that she started really going into was places where there were these women who had been incarcerated 
typically for drug-related crimes, and yet they were women who had children or who were pregnant when they were convicted, and that these women were more afraid of being out of jail than being in jail, but they struggled with how to deal with their addiction, how to deal with their struggles, how to deal with a record now, and how to deal with trying to care for the next generation. And so Laura opened up her small little tiny house and opened it up to a handful of women to invite these women over to provide support and encouragement and worship and prayer and all of these kinds of things for these women. And these women were so hungry for it that it outgrew Laura's little house. And so Laura went to her middle-aged friend. And her middle-aged friend is kind of happy and satisfied. And yet there is something empty inside her. And Laura comes to her and says, hey, I'm going to need your house to put a bunch of criminals in it. And this woman's like, wait, what? Yeah, I'm going to bring over some convicts. And we're going to help feed them and take care of their children. And we're going to give them the gospel. And we're going to pray. And we're going to change their lives. And she's like, I, I, I don't know about this. And she's like, Laura's like, this is what we're doing. And it forever changed this middle-aged woman's journey. That for the next couple of decades, her highest ideal was not, can I get my family together at a Thanksgiving meal? Can, can I have a house that looks nice? It was about bringing these people together. And she discovered a fellowship that was deeper than she could possibly imagine. Can I show you a picture of this year? Of one of the children being baptized as a result of this ministry? That's Laura on the right hand side. Just love the look on her face. This is, this is that woman's home, and this is the best use of a hot tub. It is a hot tub with Jesus right here <laughs> for a baptism. I firmly believe that God wants us to help to recover our joy. And that the only way we can do that is that it starts with that of gratitude. And so before we move into the 201 and the 301 and the 401, and I know it's Thanksgiving weekend, I need you to move past Thanksgiving as a meal or Thanksgiving as a mood or Thanksgiving as an emotion, a vague devotional feeling. I need gratitude to become a part of that firm and certain promise of God's goodness and benevolence towards you. And in order to do that, we've got to push. And let me ask you, is your confidence in your stuff? Or is your confidence in the right place? Are your practices consistent? Or are they sporadic? And are you living with community, but not just community for its own sake? Gratitude and joy was only found for this middle-aged woman until she was seeking to help to place it in others. Let me see if I can summarize it with this. True story, woman who is... Canadian by the name of Mary Grahams. She was in her 70s and she's lived her whole life on their family farm. Family farm's been in their family for 110 years at this point. 
she's out on the farm and she's doing some weeding in the garden. And when she gets back into the house, she discovers that her engagement ring is gone. They go back out of the house. They look. They look for a long time. They can't find it. Um, it, just, it just seems to be gone. So eventually they give up. She gets a replacement ring. And her husband dies. And in 13, within 13 years, she's also moved to a retirement community or village. So she's no longer on the farm. But her daughter-in-law and her son live on the farm. And one day, her daughter-in-law is working in the garden and is pulling some of the produce. And she pulls some carrots. And this <laughs> is literally what comes out of the ground. Here it is from another angle. That engagement ring on a carrot. Insert your favorite dad jokes here about, oh, there's a lot of carrots in that you know, diamond or that kind of thing. So they take this carrot and the ring and they take it to the retirement community and they hand it back to Mary. And she laughs and she breaks it apart And she cries and she puts it on and she says, it still fits. It still fits. My friends, a promise was made to you and me a long time ago. And for a long time we hung on to that promise, but somewhere along the way we lost it. And what I'm hoping over these next couple of weeks is that you will rediscover that promise and that it will come to you in a surprising way. And that you will discover that the promises of what God did in Jesus Christ as he came to earth in that Christmas, that promise still fits. It still fits. It really still fits. And so let's pray. Will you help us, O oh God, to put our confidence not in what we have or the okayness of our circumstances, but in you. Give us a solid foundation for living, not just with our trust, but also with our right practices. May we be inspired to, to be a part of remembering and thanking and praying and celebrating out of the overflow of your love each and every day. Instead of sporadic prayers, help us to live a composition of love for every note. And Father, I pray that you will renew community, a sharing of the gospel in this place, that we wouldn't just look for fellowship and friendship and community just for our own sake, but for the sake of others. And so God, help us to become more adept, not just saying what happened at Christmas with the lights and the smells and the sounds, but help us to become really good at describing and even seeing what difference Christmas makes and that we in our time can recover our joy and that that joy begins with a gratitude for the sacred promise and vow that you made for us that still fits our modern everyday life. And we pray all of these things in grateful hearts in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said.